I'd ask if you please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. We'll continue our study of the book of Acts, and this morning we'll be in Acts chapter 23, verses 12 to 35. Acts 23, 12 to 35. You know, I'm going to actually start with verse 11. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves together by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made the conspiracy, and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. For he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as they're, they're going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed Paul. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency the Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when it came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged nothing deserving death, charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter... He asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he, had been, he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory, for our encouragement, and for the building of the church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you and we praise you for this passage of Scripture. For in this passage, we see your providential care for the Apostle Paul. We see how you are ordering things, even seemingly insignificant things, even sinful things, to advance your purposes. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your protection of Paul and for the, the 
proclamation of the gospel through Paul. And we praise you, Lord, even now as we consider these things. May we all consider your providential care. May we consider your glorious character as you are sovereign over all things, that you are are at work in all things for your glory and for our good. We pray that you would impress these truths upon our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. For the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the want of a horse, the rider was lost. For the want of a rider, the battle was lost. For the, for the want of a kingdom, sorry, for want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And for want of a horseshoe, all for the want of a horseshoe nail. For the supply of a nail, the horse was shod. For the supply of a shoe, the horse was equipped. For the supply of a horse, the rider was mounted. For the supply of a rider, the battle was won. For the supply of the battle, the kingdom was saved. And all for the supply of a horseshoe nail. God supplies the nail and sometimes God doesn't supply the nail. But his will will be done. God often uses small, seemingly insignificant things to accomplish his purposes. He used a coat of many colors to expose the jealousy of Joseph's brothers. God the Son came into the world as a baby in a manger born to insignificant Jewish parents. But even more wondrously, God often uses wicked things to accomplish his purposes. The scriptures are full of examples of this as well. The jealousy of Joseph's brothers led to their selling him into slavery that resulted in the deliverance of these brothers and their families from famine. God the Son was handed over to the Romans by Jewish religious authorities and was crucified by the Romans in order to accomplish salvation from sin for his people. We'll see both of these things where God uses small things and God uses sinful things in our passage this morning as God rescues Paul from a Jewish plot using Paul's nephew, a man who is otherwise completely unknown. And God rescues Paul from the wicked plots of the Jews through the pagan Roman legions who are occupying Israel. Through these these events, Jesus' promise to Paul is fulfilled, that Paul would bear witness of Jesus Christ in Rome just as he had done in Jerusalem. Sometimes God brings deliverance from trials, and sometimes he doesn't. This morning we prayed for the family of a pastor in Nigeria who was shot and killed. We prayed for another pastor, a pastor in Pakistan, who was shot and survived. So God sometimes delivers us from trials, but we find in the scriptures and also in our own lives that God most often delivers us through trials in order to help us to reflect the gospel, to set our hope on our full and our final deliverance at the return of Christ. The passage that we looked at last week ended with verse 11. I read it a moment ago. The following night, the Lord stood by him, by Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Well, this week begins with the same verse. Verse 11 really is a hinge verse. It points back to the previous passage, and it points ahead to today's passage. 
it completes the previous passage by providing peace to Paul and promising his proclamation in Rome. It introduces the passage this morning where we see the Jewish plot and God's providence as he provides protection for Paul through Roman soldiers all the way to Herod's Praetorium. God is always the first cause. But by his providence, he rules and directs all things to accomplish his ends. And he often uses second causes to, to protect and provide for Paul as Paul, accomplish, as Paul accomplishes God's plans. God uses second causes to protect and provide for us also as we accomplish his plans. So God is the first cause. God is the primary cause. God is the sovereign one. He is sovereign over all things. But in his sovereignty, which is over sin, yet God does not partake in sin. He's not the author of sin. God uses second causes. He uses the, the choices of, of creatures who, who have a, a will of their own. It is, it is, for those who are apart from Christ, it is will, it is bound, it is captive to sin, and so they don't have free will in the sense it's free to, to choose the right or the wrong. But they are, they are free human agents. They, they can choose one course of action or they can choose another. And somehow, mysteriously, in his providence, God is over it all. And he's using it all to accomplish his purposes. Again, for his glory ultimately, but also for the good of his people. Verse 11 was not the first time that Jesus appeared to Paul to encourage him. In Corinth, back in, in Acts 18, Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And then Luke tells us that Paul stayed for a full year and a half in Corinth teaching the word of God. And then Luke tells us that the Jews made a united attack against Paul and dragged him before the Roman proconsul Gallio. The Jews accused Paul of persuading the people to worship God contrary to the law. But Gallio's judgment was that this was a matter of the Jews' law and refused to make judgment on these things. We're going to see very similar themes in our passage this morning. There are four key sections in this passage. In verses 12 to 15, we see the Jewish plot. And in verses 16 to 24, we see the plot foiled. Then in verses 25 to 30, we see the tribune's letter. And then verses 31 to 35, we see the journey to Caesarea. Again, we're going to see how God uses second causes to protect and to provide for Paul as Paul accomplishes God's plans. So the Jewish plot, verses 12 to 15. As our passage begins, Paul is in grave danger from a human perspective. The very next morning after Jesus appeared to Paul, a group of 40 Jews made a plot to kill Paul. The ESV, ESV says that they bound themselves together with an oath to neither eat nor drink until they killed Paul. But the word that is used here, translated, is translated oath, is not the usual word that's translated oath. It says literally that they anathematized themselves, that they cursed themselves. This is the same word that was used in Mark 14.71 to describe Peter's calling down a curse upon himself in his denial of Christ. These Jews pronounced a curse upon themselves not to eat or to drink 
until they killed Paul. The plot and this, this plot and, and the curse are mentioned three times in this passage. Luke is, is underscoring the wicked intentions of these men. So they were cursing themselves not to eat or drink, but they were, they were actually cursing themselves with far worse consequences than, with, than going without food and drink. Now, Jewish law did allow that if a person who made a vow was unable to, to, to fulfill that vow for unforeseen circumstances, that they would, be, they would not have to, to, to forbear the, the consequences of their curse. But the reality is that they were under a far more serious, a far more grave curse. Because they're walking willful rebellion against Almighty God. And the reality is, we are all under that curse. The only way out of that curse is through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ who bore the curse for us. So if you are here as a Christian this morning, it's because Jesus Christ was cursed in your place. He bore the curse. He bore the wrath of of God for our sin on the cross. But these men hated Jesus Christ. And they hated the gospel. That's why they hated Paul. They hated Paul because he bore witness of Jesus and of his gospel. And we're not surprised by their actions. The, the Jews had already made many plots against Paul. They plotted against Paul in Damascus in Acts 19, 23-25. They plotted against Paul in Jerusalem in Acts 9, 29-30. and 30. They plotted against Paul in Corinth. In Acts 23, and in 21.11, Agabus prophesied precisely, taking Paul's belt and wrapping it around his own feet and his hands and saying, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. But Paul had determined to go to Jerusalem. The, the, the Holy Spirit had had impressed upon his heart the need for him to go to Jerusalem, and so he obediently went to Jerusalem. There were more than 40 men who were involved in this conspiracy. They, they went to the chief priests and the elders who were members of the Sanhedrin, but it was not the Pharisees who had sided with Paul at the hearing the day before. It was Ananias and his Sadducee cronies, the ones who had wielded the power in the Sanhedrin. The, conspiracy, the conspirators repeated the term of their terms of the curse and directed their allies to go to the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, pretending to want to question Paul more carefully. And, and then they would be waiting in ambush to kill Paul before he got there. And although Luke, Luke does not tell us directly, these members of the Sanhedrin consented to the plan. They went along with it. Paul really wasn't wrong in his assessment of the high priest. He truly was a whitewashed wall who violated the law that he was supposed to defend. But what he was doing here goes far beyond merely the miscarriage of justice in striking Paul. This is total rebellion against the sixth commandment, against God. Ananias, along with these conspirators, who also claimed to be zealous for the law, were plotting murder. So often, religious people who actively pursue sin hide behind God's word while totally rejecting God's word. 
Now, we're, we, at least I hope, are not actively plotting to kill anyone, but as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, we break the sixth commandment in our heart when we harbor anger and unforgiveness against others, even our brothers and sisters. And we try to justify ourselves by building a case against them in our hearts and before others. So in our hearts, we, we pronounce them as guilty. And we, we tell others how bad these people are. And all this, as Jesus teaches, is actually at, at the heart committing murder. May the Lord forgive us. And may the Lord help us to love and to forgive one another from the overflow of the love and forgiveness that we have received in Jesus Christ. You don't love and forgive others out of your own resources. It is the, the, you love and forgive others out of the, the infinite resources of the love and forgiveness that he showers upon you, not just to the point of, of conversion, but every single day of your life. The plot foiled, verses 16 to 24. Well, now we meet someone new. Paul's sister's son. He's only a bit player in church history. And we don't even have any cause to think that he was actually a believer. But he had an outsized importance in church history in protecting the life of the Apostle Paul according to God's providence. This is the only mention of Paul's nephew and the only mention of Paul's blood relations in the entire New Testament. Now, perhaps Paul had been disowned when he came to faith. That, that often happened in, in, in Orthodox Jewish circles. It still does. We don't know. But nevertheless, Paul's nephew, a young man, probably in his late teens or early 20s, found out about the planned ambush. And so he went to the barracks. He went to the barracks and he told Paul what was going to happen. Now, it might seem surprising to us that, that Paul's nephew would just be able to go waltzing into the Antonia fortress and see Paul. But as a Roman citizen, Paul was entitled to have visitors. And furthermore, Paul had demonstrated that he was of high social standing and that, and in fact, he was more than a prisoner. He was really under protective custody. But the more curious thing in my mind is how Paul's nephew found out about the plot. Now, this is just surmising on my part, but, but I believe it points to the high social standing in Paul's family in Jewish society. Remember, the evidence points to Paul and his family being, being actually quite wealthy and influential. Not many young Jews would have had the opportunity or the means to be able to be taught personally by Gamaliel, the most renowned rabbi in Israel. Now, of course, we can't know for certain but most likely, Paul's nephew had connections in the upper echelons of Jewish society, very likely among the Sanhedrin. And so he found out about what was going to happen. And so Paul's nephew told him about the plot, and then Paul told one of the centurions to bring his nephew to the tribune. And so the centurion agreed and said before the tribune, that Paul the prisoner calling me, called me and asked me to bring you this young man as he's something to say to you. And so the, the tribune took Paul's nephew aside and asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And so Paul's nephew explained that the details of the plot, that the Sanhedrin was going to bring Paul before them under the pretext of examining him closely, and he warned the tribune not to be persuaded because these men were lying in ambush to kill Paul. 
And again, we hear that they made a curse, they pronounced a curse upon themselves not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. The men of the council were told were ready and waiting for the tribune's consent. And so the tribune dismissed Paul's nephew and told him to keep their conversation a secret. As Sinclair Ferguson says, there were many secrets in Jerusalem that day. The tribune here acts with discretion, with, with urgency and abundance of caution. He called two centurions and tells them to muster 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and, and 20 spearmen to escort Paul to Caesarea under the cover of darkness at 9 o'clock that evening. Now we've talked before about 200 Roman soldiers being used to guard Paul as he preached to the Jewish mob from the steps of the Antonia Fortress. But this is now a, 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 a troop of 470 battle-seasoned soldiers. Almost half of the, the entire garrison at the Antonia Fortress is now being used to protect Paul. Certainly, 470 troops would have been more than enough to handle 40-plus Jewish zealots. And so the plan is to escort Paul to Caesarea Maritima. That's the Caesarea where Paul had arrived when he, when he landed from his, his last missionary journey. The, the same Caesarea that we've read about several times already in Acts. And this was really the, the headquarters of the Romans in Judea. So now, the tribune's letter, verses 25 to 30. The tribune sent a letter to Felix explaining the situation. Now, Luke likely did not have access to the actual letter, but he provides a summary, really explaining the, the gist of what was said. The letter begins with the customary greeting from Claudius, Claudius Lysias to Felix, calling him his excellency. Now this salutation was actually above Felix's rank, but this is not the only part of that letter that is less than factual. We've spoken about Felix before. He was a freed slave who through his brother's influence and intrigue had grown through the ranks in influence and power in Roman society. The Roman historian Tacitus believed that Felix's true nature as a former slave would be exposed no matter how hard he how high he climbed in the Roman hierarchy. Tacitus says that Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with all the instincts of a slave. Felix was known for his brutality, especially toward the Jews. In fact, he would lose his position in Judea in 89 AD 59 or, 80, or 60 for the violent failed attempt to deal with riots from the, from the Jews in Caesarea. And so this letter explains how Paul had been seized by the Jews and was, would have been killed by them when he originally went into the temple. But note the spin here. Lysias says that he rescued Paul, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now Lysias did, in fact, rescue Paul, but not because he was a Roman citizen. Lysias won't find that out until later. He thought Paul was an Egyptian insurrectionist. And he was simply trying to stop a riot. He also conveniently leaves the part out about, about ordering the, the centurion to have Paul scourged, which was illegal to do to a Roman citizen without a trial. And so the letter explains all these things again with spin, and it's really it's, it's 
from a human perspective, you can kind of understand it. He wants to put the best foot forward before, before Felix. He doesn't want to get in trouble for his missteps along the way. And the letter then explains accurately how Lysias brought Paul before the Jewish council in order to determine what their charges were against him. But verse 29 is the most important part of the letter for Luke's narrative. He says, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. The charges against Paul were a matter of Jewish law. And we were already seeing some of the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin exonerate Paul in, in uh, chapter 23.9 as they found nothing wrong with Paul's theology. As I mentioned earlier, in, in, in Acts 18.15, Gallio concludes that Paul had done nothing wrong according to Roman law. And now another Roman official exonerates Paul, saying that he had done nothing that deserved death or imprisonment according to Roman law. And in, verse, in chapter 26, verses 30 and 30, 31 and 32, the Jewish king Agrippa will render the same verdict. He'll say that Paul is doing nothing deserving death or imprisonment and that he could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And this judgment that Paul has done nothing wrong very much parallels Pilate's judgment of Jesus in Luke 23, 14 and 15, using very similar words. You brought me this man who was guilty. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Luke here is highlighting the fact that, that Paul is following in the footsteps of Jesus. The letter concludes by saying that when Lysias discovered the plot against Paul, he sent him immediately to Felix and ordered that he and his accusers would tell Felix what they have against him, that he would have the right in, in a proper Roman trial to give an answer before his accusers. And this is the trial that we're going to learn about next week, Lord willing, in chapter 24. Finally, verses 31 to 35, the journey to Caesarea. This section describes the journey. The Roman contingent went as, as far as Antipatris, some 50, 56 kilometers to the northwest. Now, some think that there's no way that Roman troops would be able to travel that far in a night, but there's plenty of evidence outside of Scripture that seasoned Roman troops could travel very long ways very quickly. And the next day, having left the, the more dangerous Jewish territory for an area predominantly inhabited by Gentiles, the 400 foot soldiers, the 200 Soldiers and the, the 200 spearmen returned back to the Antonia fortress, back to base. And the 70 cavalry, still a, a formidable force, traveled with Paul the final 40 kilometers to Caesarea. Then the soldiers presented Paul to Felix. Felix read the letter and asked Paul what province he was from. And when he learned that Paul was from Cilicia in Syria, he agreed to hear the case. Likely he, he viewed the, the case as too small of a matter to trouble the Syrian legate with it. And so Paul was placed in Herod's praetorium, the, the governor's palace that was originally built by Herod the Great. I had the privilege of, of visiting there many years ago. And, and much of it is, is still intact, and it's, it's still, even to this day, a very impressive fortress on the coast of the Mediterranean. Now, it might not make sense to us, 
But we'll see in the final chapters that Paul is, is held in this location for two years before his journey to Rome. Now, now if you and I were, were planning things, we'd probably think, well, Paul's a worthwhile and useful missionary. He, he, we need to get him out there again. But in God's plan and God's providence, he keeps Paul here for two years. In fact, when he goes to Rome, he's going to be in, in, under house arrest in Rome for another two years. I think we, we can all learn a lesson of patience in, in, in trusting God's plan when we think about these things. But this, is Paul, this was Paul's last recorded time in Jerusalem. And his, the final steps of his mission to Rome begin with a complete military escort. Because we're going to see that, that it is actually the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to Paul in verse 11 that comes through a Jewish plot and through the Roman protection. Again, God's ways are, are infinitely higher than our ways. God's wisdom is infinitely greater than anything that man could come up with. And we'll see that, that during the, these next two years, in the remaining chapters of, of Acts, that Paul is going to, to minister, not just to Felix, but to his successor, Festus, and to King Agrippa and his wife. And then when he goes on to Rome, he's going to, he's going to testify of Jesus Christ before Caesar Nero. And it all begins to take place because of a wicked plot of those who hate Paul because they hate Christ. And through the fulfillment of Acts 9.15, as we, as, as we heard back at Paul's commissioning, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And it's all the fulfillment of Acts 1.8, which is really the, the, the unifying verse of the entire book. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. God's will will be done. Not just no matter the plots of, of, of wicked human beings, but even through the plans of wicked human beings. And when Paul is, is in Rome, again, he's in prison for two years, we think, well, again, if it was our plan, we'd have Paul out there. But it was during that time that Paul wrote the prison epistles, Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. Aren't you glad those books are in the Bible? Yeah. Amen. That's because of Paul's imprisonment. Again, God's ways are not our ways. God's wisdom is infinitely higher than our wisdom. So here Paul is, locked up, on, uh, locked up in, in Herod's palace in the Praetorian in, with a, a full garrison of Roman soldiers protecting him. Just, I just think about what it would have been like. Now it was at night, but, but to think of, of seeing those, those 470 soldiers marching down the road and what an impressive sight that would have been. 
But Paul was as safe on that road and in that fortress as he was sleeping in bed in his mother's home. And it wasn't ultimately because of the Romans. It was because of the one who was directing these events. Festus didn't realize it. But according to God's providence, this is what he was here for. Protecting Paul was the most important thing that Festus ever would do. The soldiers didn't realize it, but this was what they were here for. Protecting Paul, according to God's providence, is the most important reason that they had been sent to, to Jerusalem. And Claudius Lysias. Again, according to God's providence, protecting Paul was the most important thing he would ever do. Protecting Paul, according to God's providence, was the most important thing that Paul's nephew would ever do. And even the plotting Jews, according to God's providence, played an important role because it was through their conspiracy that Paul was sent to Caesarea where he bare witness to Felix and Festus and Agrippa and his wife. And it was through their conspiracy that Paul would be sent to Rome where he would witness to Caesar Nero. Again, as we talk to the kids, there's a mystery in God's providence, a, a, a supreme mystery that, that God can be sovereign over all things, in control of all things, and using even sin to accomplish his ends. Chapter 3 of the London Baptist Confession deals with God's decree. And, and again, I, I want to heartily commend that document to, to you. It is our, our teaching standard of the church and will be officially become our teaching standard of the, of the church, Lord willing. We have our, our members, our annual general meeting at the beginning of next year. And I would commend to you our Sunday school classes when we're, we're talking about these things. This is deep and rich biblical theology. And I can pretty much guarantee, unless you're serving in another ministry, that it's that you there's no place that's more important for you to be than in Sunday school. Chapter 3 of London Baptist Confession. God is neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. Nor, now listen to this, nor is violence done, this is violence offered rather to the will of the creature, nor yet is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Let's unpack that. Again, God is not the author of sin. He has no fellowship with sin. And also, moral agents make choices. They have a, a, a freedom according to their, their fallen wills to choose certain courses of action. And these things are actually used of God to establish his plans. And so we see God's wisdom in, in working all things, again, together for, for his glory. We see his power and his faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. And the, the wonder and the, the glory of, of God's providence is really the, the motivation for the name of this church, that, that we would, all of us would grow in a, in a deeper understanding of, of the, the power of God, the sovereignty of God over all things. And his omnipotence, his, his supreme wisdom in working all things 
for His glory and our good. And God's love for us in how He uses these things. Paul was not just a pawn in achieving God's ends. Paul is the bride of part of the bride of Christ. God chose Paul, not even just to share the gospel. God chose Paul because he set his love upon Paul, his holy, his unfathomable love. And so this is, again, not just to, to help Paul achieve the ends for, for, of the gospel, but, but as the object of God's love, God is glorified in, in showing his love for Paul and protecting Paul. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that the same God who loved and protected Paul loves and protects us with the very same love that he has for Paul. Brothers and sisters, God loves you every bit as much as he loves Paul. Because God loves you every bit as much as he loves his son. And if we want to see that, if you want to understand that, we see that in passages like this. But the place that we see it most powerfully is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to understand God's love and God's sovereignty and God's wisdom, look to the cross. For it is on the cross where you see the attributes of God most powerfully displayed. As the Father poured out his wrath on his Son in your place and mine for our sins. As the Son, out of perfect love and obedience to his Heavenly Father and out of perfect love for his neighbor, laid down his life for us. Joyfully, willingly, because we are his bride. Now he took up his life again on the third day, victorious over sin and death and hell for himself and for us. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be cross-eyed. We need to be focused, seeing everything through the cross, interpreting all of life, interpreting all circumstances, whether pleasant or painful, through the cross. Those difficult circumstances, even the, the difficult circumstances that you are facing right now, child of God, God is at work in these things for his glory and for your good. It was true for Paul and it's true for you. At the end of the day, and all day long, every day, our ultimate source of comfort is who God is and who God is for us in Christ Jesus. For the ear of Paul's nephew, the tribune was alerted. For the alert of the tribune, an army was mustered. For the muster of an army, the plot was foiled. For the foiling of the plot, the Paul was spared. For the sparing of Paul, the gospel was spread. For the spread of the gospel, Paul would reach Rome. For the reach of the gospel to Rome, the gospel 
would reach us as well. Through the imprisonment of Paul, the gospel would reach Rome, and through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, salvation would reach us. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel that saves. This is the God who saves. Is he your God? Then trust him for who he is. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious God, we wonder at your wisdom. We wonder at your power. We wonder at your love. And we wonder at the cross, which is the greatest manifestation of your wisdom, power, and love. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would empower us to preach this gospel to ourselves, to preach this gospel to each other, to encourage one another, and to build each other up in the gospel. so that you would be glorified in us and through us for the advance of your kingdom and the glory of your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.